This is episode 55 of the Untangled Faith podcast. Today I'm joined by author Lori Wilbur, and we spend some time talking about the spiritual discipline of curiosity and our complicated feelings about certainty. It's definitely an implicit requirement of certainty to be included. Um, you prescribe to all these doctrinal points, therefore we will receive you as good. You vote this way, therefore we trust you. You, you know, and yet I've found for me over the past probably 12 years, incredible richness in just incredible richness in being able to say, yeah, I don't know. This is Amy Fritz, and you're listening to Untangled Faith, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all the things that are not good and true, this is the place for you. I know what it's like to know you should do something, but you just can't figure out a way to actually do it. I bet getting started with a counselor is one of those things for you. Faithful counseling makes it so easy to get started. You can start the process without even picking up the phone to talk to someone. The Untangled Faith podcast is brought to you by my listeners who support me on Patreon, but this episode is also brought to you by Faithful Counseling. Faithful Counseling is a Christian counseling service with more than 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 states with access by video or phone sessions or chat or text. There are therapists with expertise in trauma, depression, family conflicts, and more. You can ask for a new counselor at any time and financial aid is available for those who qualify. Untangled Faith podcast listeners get 10% off their first month from our sponsor, Faithful Counseling. Go to faithfulcounseling.com untangled. Fill out a questionnaire and you'll be matched with a counselor. That's faithfulcounseling.com untangled. Lori Wilbert's new book, A Curious Faith, came out recently and one of my listeners suggested I have her on the show. The topic of her new book turned out to be a perfect fit for a conversation that I know you'll find valuable. Lori and I kept talking at the end of this episode to record some bonus audio for the Patreon community. You can find that at patreon.com slash untangledfaith. Here's my conversation with Lori. How are you? I'm well. I'm a little, um, the sort of the post book release sort of like, You've okay, done all the things. I never want to be on social media again, and yet I have to continue showing up there. And so yeah. um, I'm just hoping that the book sells itself, honestly. That's yes. where I am. So, the tension, yeah. I think, is so good. I, you know, talking with Caitlin Beatty, mm-hmm. of course, she's talking about, wrote about, you know, celebrity and mm-hmm. the tension involved in promoting something. Yeah. I feel like there's a healthy respect when you feel that like the little angsty feeling is yeah, a reminder. That's true. Yeah. If you lose it, it's probably a sign that something's wrong. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, yeah. I don't want to lose that angst, but I also like don't want to live there. So yeah, that's... I can tend to angst and I can see you as an Enneagram nine. Like yeah. I'm married to an Enneagram nine, the most steady, <laughs> wonderful, <laughs> stubborn, sneakily stubborn person. Yeah. But like easy to get in the like questioning question yeah so have you ever seen the good place okay chidi there's a scene where chidi is saying to eleanor he's like you know the sound that a fork makes when it gets stuck in the garbage disposal (laughs) that's the sound my brain's making all the time oh (laughs) that is the perfect description i think of an enneagram nine it's like 
very placid on the outside and inside it's like so yeah it's it's the deep well it's like the when you get to have that conversation and I want to talk about this with you you yeah. talk about questions this is the whole book is about curiosity but you talk you, you give an example about how you are a master question asker and I wonder and I, I, you didn't say you were a master at it. You just, just, I mean, this isn't bragging. I think you were just stating a fact about this is something that you are good at, but it can also have like a, a shadow side, right? Like it can yeah. be a wonderful gift in a community and making people feel seen, but tell me how that has shown up for you in a way that has shielded you or you've used it maybe as a way of self-protection. Yeah. I mean, cl- classic case of like if I can keep the attention on you the attention doesn't have to be on me and so um and I use it for years as just like a protective um shield against I didn't even it wasn't even a cognitive decision it just was I don't want to have to be vulnerable and um and this is working for me until it until I realized this is actually not only not working for me, it's working against me. And it's actually really, in some ways, corrosive to, well, I think in every way, corrosive to every relationship in my life. And uh, and that was like a, a real come to Jesus moment for me where I just had to be like, oh, wow, this is not a gift. This is, like you said, there is a shadow side to this. Um, and it's still, Amy, it is still a struggle for me. It's not something yeah. that I've. And here you are showing up and from. having to answer questions. <laughs> yeah. I, the irony, right? <laughs> the irony. Like God says, Lori, we're going to write a book Yeah, about curiosity. And here's the secret at the end. People are going to be asking you yeah. questions and it's going to require something of you that you would, that it, it's, it costs something for your personality to show up and engage this way. I think it especially costs something in personal relationships. I think in public relationships, I generally have not struggled being vulnerable. Um, and that is a form of control. Um, yeah. It's sort of controlling the the image, the mm-hmm. shadow self, the whatever you want to call it. It's mm-hmm. control. Um, and it's corrosive to our souls. Uh, and the only way, ironically, that it heals is to be vulnerable with the people who are closest to us mm, yeah the people that you know you're gonna see in real life that you're gonna bump into who are gonna see me like who aren't gonna be able to or are gonna be confronted by the realities of what that vulnerability means yeah yeah the, sort of the dregs of my soul yeah and that's the hard thing I think that's why sometimes you know people that we are comfortable with get to see the ugliest parts of us the most where they are the ones that we really need to say, how do you experience me? Like Chuck DeGroat says, that's such a great, it's such a powerful question. And you can't do that false vulnerability with people that you live with people that you are sitting like kneecap to kneecap with. There's no faking that. I think honestly, like, I think you can fake it. I think you can fake it. I think you fake it by there's, there's a sense of intimacy comes when we ask people questions that creates for them an experience of intimacy, right? Mm-hmm. So they think, oh, we have such an intimate relationship. We are, and so they don't read that as wrong until suddenly they realize, wait a minute, 
this intimacy is only one-sided and this is really unhealthy. And so I think you can fake it. And unfortunately, I think, I mean, you know this, we see this all too much in the church today where people are, and honestly, we're told from a young age, fake it till you make it, right? And so it works in some places until it doesn't. Yeah, it seems like a virtue. And then all of a sudden you're like, hang on, what, this is, this is, like I said, this is corrosive. And um, that's the only word I know to use to describe what it does to your soul. It's powerful. You talk about um, uncertainty in your book. Mm-hmm. And tell me about your relationship with being okay with being uncertain. Has this been a journey for you? I feel like in the Christian environment I've grown up in, there's a value placed in being certain. We're all about, like, I grew up in a very conservative Christian world that was, like, wonderful to me. I was in a very comfortable, it was very comfortable, it was very natural I had all the privileges of it without being exposed to a lot of the the downsides, which I'm very grateful for. But it's just now as, you know, I'm in my 40s where I am learning, oh, there's something powerful about saying, I don't know. What's your what's your experience with being uncertain and your comfort think, level with it? Uh, well, I don't know. I don't know if it's always been comfort. Um, yeah. I think for a long time that that I don't know was actually incredibly uncomfortable for me because of the environments in which I found myself where certainty, even if it wasn't explicit requirement of certainty, there's definitely an implicit Mm -hmm. requirement of certainty to be included and to be loved and to be accepted. Um, And by implicit, I mean, you, um, you prescribe to all these doctrinal points. Therefore, we will receive you as good. You vote this way. Therefore, we trust you. You, you know, there's this sort of implicit inclusion into those spaces when we can identify, when we can label what exactly we believe. And yet I've found for me over the past probably 12 years, incredible richness in, um, there's a pastor I know of who who calls it the pastoral, I don't know. Um, And so just incredible richness in being able to say, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the right, um, what the right thing to do is in politics right now. I really don't. And I think it's really easy to say, well, you should vote this way on both sides. (laughs) But I'm like, I I don't know. I don't know. You can be fundamentalists uh, either way. Yeah. Uh, So, so tricky. There is a high, there is a high value placed on certainty, yeah. uh, progressive, conservative, mm-hmm. uh, Republican, Democrat, yeah. like wherever you land as far as your faith. Yeah. And how do you know, how do you, how do you balance this, Lori, as somebody that, you know, you tend to that like neutral stance as a part of who you are. Like, mm. how do you, how do you differentiate between the healthy I don't know, and the unhealthy avoidance of like conflict. Yeah. So I think you're referring perhaps to the fact that I'm an Enneagram nine. Yes, and I so am. I, um, the neutral stance often feels the most comfortable for me. Um, and what I have had to learn is that there is a, there is a virtue and a vice about that. And what I have to identify in my spirit and soul is, am I being passive in mm. my neutrality or am I being active in my peace? What's the difference? Um, yeah, it's it. Well, it's hard to explain. I think it's really, you know, 
the work of the spirit, the spirit, yeah. like yeah. paying attention to the spirit. Um, but for me, I think the difference is um, if I genuinely don't know, I'm going to probably have a more neutral in, intentionally um, be a person of peace in, in that environment. If I generally or genuinely don't know the answer. Yeah. If I do feel a sense of certainty in the answer and yet I'm being, I just don't want to own it. Um, that's passivity. Uh, and, and there's a way that you can genuinely know the answer and still be a person of peace. I think, although there's very little about which I know genuinely or genuinely know the answer. <laughs> I would yeah. say I'm a creedal Christian. The creed is sort of the immovable things for me. Um, everything else, there is a lot of, there's a lot of, I don't knowing, which is really hard, Amy, because. Oh man, I feel this with you. Yeah, there's a lot of there's like injustice in the world that we want to rightly critique and discipline. And then there's like virtue in the world we want to rightly proclaim. And but underneath that injustice, there is something good. There's something, there's an image bearer, right? Yeah. And underneath that virtue, there's something hard. There's sin, there's brokenness. Ugh. I hate it. I yeah. hate it, Lori. I want things to be much clearer. I want there yeah. to be good guys and bad guys. I want a really bright, dark, thick line. Yeah. And it's not like that. Well, I think some things are like that. I think the enemy is the bad guy. Yeah. yeah. And, and Jesus is the good guy. And um, I think when we start to make humans image bearers, our enemies, that's when we're treading into, I think, some dangerous territory for our, for not even for their souls, but for our own souls. Lori's words about the danger of making image bearers our enemies is one of those things that is staying with me. I don't know if this is a word for me or if it's relevant to you or both of us, but maybe we can mull it over together. How do you resist? And I don't know if you've had this experience or not. If you have, you can speak to it. If not, we can move on to another question. How do you resist that pull where when somebody really wants you to be certain on something is trying to talk you into staking your claim and you aren't there yet what's that like I tend to ask questions I tend to say um why is this important to you like what is the value that you have here that you think I'm missing what blind spots do you think that I have here um what would change for you if I came around to seeing this from your perspective I think that so often in those spaces where we disagree vehemently with someone, it's really easy to just go to, in some ways, demonizing them. Um, and I find that taking a deep breath, assuming a posture of curiosity, mm -hmm. and moving toward them until it becomes clear that, that that moving toward them is just, in some ways, maybe adding fuel to a fire that's not worth kindling. Yeah right now um so questions can make people like we said at the beginning questions can make people feel really threatened um and that's not my aim with my questions so i want to make sure my heart posture is like i genuinely want to know why is this important to you and what am i what do you think that i'm missing in this mm -hmm. it's really hard oh yeah i kind of see that tension between that posture and a world of like there's an industry around apologetics of having the right answers. Yeah. I've had some complicated feelings about apologetics ministries lately. 
I've seen a lot of arrogance and a real resistance to reckoning with the very real systemic issue of race, as if this is a threat to the gospel. And honestly, the lack of academic rigor and many of the conservative science experts is something my kids have easily seen through. These folks are certainly not helping the faith of my kids. I was eager to have this conversation with Lori. And I wonder how, how are you feeling about the, you know, in my, in my world, I, I homeschool some, like two of my kids, one of my kids goes to the public school. We're doing the best we can for everybody. But I see this push, especially in more conservative circles, that we need to teach the kids how to have the right answers. And if we just have them, you know, follow these apologetic leaders, that they will be fine. They'll, they're not going to lose their faith when they go to college. How, how do you feel when I talk about all of that? I grew up in some of the, these like fundamentalist homeschooling. There's a right way to do things and a wrong way. And um, to me, it reeks of control. It says we don't trust that truth, God's truth, is creamy enough to rise to the top. Mm. We believe that we have to somehow create the perfect environment. We have to somehow take care of, control, place boundaries around, point people to specific answer people um, because we don't trust God and we don't trust God's truth. Um, and I know that's really hard. Like that's a really hard thing. It's It really is an act of faith to say, I'm going to trust my children to you, my husband to you, my town to you. I'm going to trust that you are you are in the work of redeeming all things and reconciling all things to yourself. And there are going to be times where we veer off the path of what is ultimately true. Um, but if you're a good God, and I believe you are, you will draw us back. And it's an act of faith. That's not easy. Yeah. That's, that isn't like a, yeah, that's not an easy It's not thing a course that you take and everything will be no. fine. Mm-mm. If you've had any interaction, and I'm sure you have with teenagers, yeah. <laughs> uh, they're, I don't see them being super impressed with the arguments. My oldest can get sucked into the YouTube algorithm of all the things, but he smells when something is not genuine and that they aren't really following the science. He's like, he's my sciencey smart guy. And he's like, mom, this answers in Genesis guy is wrong. And I can't argue with him. (laughs) I have to say, I think you're right, son. I, I think he's a misled too, but I think in many ways, it's not like ill-intentioned. It is like this hope. And and I think the word, like you said, control is really hard to, to like grapple with the idea that we can't, that if, if, that there isn't a one way to make sure that we don't lose, (laughs) lose our faith, lose it if we don't have the right answers. I was going to ask you about um, curiosity as a spiritual discipline. You mentioned this in your Mm -hmm. book. Tell tell me about that. Yeah. So I talk about cultivating curiosity as a spiritual discipline because I think that we, we, we don't even, it's not so much even that we, we don't let other people inspect our lives. We don't even want to inspect our lives. Like we don't want to delve down deep um, into what's going on underneath the surface. I'm, uh, I keep talking about this book and I feel bad because it, it deals with some like adult, um, material, but I'm reading, uh, for a class that I'm taking, I'm reading Susan Howich's book, 
glittering images. And um, it's written back in the 80s, but it's set in the 30s. And it's all about this um, this Anglican priest who has this moment where he realizes how how much he only engages with the what he calls the glittering image of himself and with others. And um, and I think we all do that. We just don't want to, we don't want to get underneath the surface. We don't want to really explore what's going on underneath. We would much rather put the microscope on someone else yeah. and dissect their spiritual health and wellness than put it on ourselves. Um, and I think too, we can, we can let curiosity become sort of this unraveling where we we find ourselves in just a ball, a messy ball at the end of it. Um, mm. And I think that curiosity is, is sort of following the breadcrumbs to a source um, of goodness. And I say in the book that God created us curious because he wants to be found. And yeah. so that's what I mean by cultivating it as a spiritual discipline is it, it does have a dark side, but it also has a light side. And, um, and we, we can cultivate that. Yeah. And curious about God, curious about others and curious about your own self. Mm -hmm. I think that is really, that is really key. Um, if you forget any one of those things, you can get a little lopsided. Yeah, it's interesting. I was just, um, you probably grew up with this mindset too, but sort of like we serve Jesus, others, ourselves. That, that was kind of the order, <laughs> you know, yes. growing up. That's the order we serve people in. And I, I have begun thinking about what if I thought about serving people in terms of practicing curiosity about them? So how can I serve Jesus best? By knowing the heart of God. I think by doing the things I see my father doing, and that's going to require me to get curious. How can I serve others best by really being curious about them and not just assuming or like treating my quote service as if it's like a gold star, like yeah. look at me, I'm serving others. But how do the people I want to serve really need to be served? Um, that's going to require me to get curious. Yeah. And the um, person that has a different flag in their front yard, a different sign. Yep. Uh, the you know if they have a flag or a sign of some sort that makes us feel anxious, like yeah. the curiosity of like why do we feel that way, and the curiosity of like I wonder what has happened in their life, what their story is yeah. that led them to that place. That, like the question that you said, like where are you? Yeah. That's like one of the first. That's the first chapter I think that you wrote, and. Yeah. That before we ask, who are you? That God is asking, where are you? And like really literally, where are you? Um, I sat and journaled through that yesterday thinking, where am I? I'm sitting in my room, in my little sitting area, in this house, in this area that we specifically moved in for my kid to go to a public school where we felt like it would be good in a in a state we moved to for a job that my husband thought was going to be his forever job and all of the things that led to like where we are, it tells us, it tells a huge story. I yeah. love that. That's a powerful question. Yeah. And the, where you are, even you are the person that has moved. <laughs> God has literally moved you. Yeah. From, you know, like, the East Coast 
to this, the South, you know, back to New York, you know, how did it feel for you when you were writing about that question of where are you? It was hard in some ways because it, I think that if I'm honest, so for those who aren't familiar, I, I think I've lived in eight different states. I've had like 38 different roommates. I have moved a lot. Like in the first five years of my marriage, we moved cross country four times. Like it just, we just have moved a lot. And um, I think while I was writing that, I, I feel a lot of shame about the moves that we've had. And um, there's think- value put on being in one place forever. And mm-hmm. some, you know, like that is something good. Like it's the measure of your faithfulness, I think, too. And I think the thing the Lord has had to really do in me is say, hey, you in each of those moves, you were doing what you thought was best. You you were doing what you thought the spirit was leading you to do. And can you trust that um, even though it might appear like faithlessness to the world, that was faithfulness to me. And I can, I can say, yes, I do see that because I do, I do see God's faithfulness in all of those places, but I have had to deal with that shame and, um, and missed opportunities that have come from moving and leaving deep friendships and, you know, all kinds of things. So there are beautiful aspects of that moving and there are, and there are heartbreaking aspects of that moving. But I, one of my closest friends has lived in the same one square mile of an area almost her entire life, um, has lived in this area. And there is such goodness in her too. And I see the fruit of her having experienced to the depth that she's experienced in this one place. And so I think that there's beautiful and there's like brokenness with both things and but I think we have to answer that question for ourselves and not say like where is that person I want to be like that person I want to have what that person (laughs) has where am I where does God have me what is he what has he done with me here Mm -hmm. we'll be right back after a quick break I'm working out the details of a live stream for my listeners that's you by the way This will be a laid back time where we can log on and ask questions and listen as I have a live conversation right there in real time. This will be exclusively offered to my Patreon community. If you have not already joined us, there's no time like the present. The Patreon community is the primary way this podcast is funded. As a thank you for their support, my patrons receive access to bonus audio that doesn't get shared with the public and occasional live streams. I'm also planning some fun bonuses for December. You can access all of this by going to patreon.com slash untangledfaith. That's patreon.com slash untangledfaith. Now back to the show. Because I have held on to certainty as an idol, I think, for a really long time. It's a really comfortable place for me to be. And then life happens. It bumped into real life. Yeah, I think it's it's so true. I think sometimes like our our the one thing that maybe I don't even think, I don't don't want to use the language we can get right, but the one thing that we can do is to love God and love others, to walk humbly, to love justice, to do, to do justice, to love mercy. And uh, we're going to even do those things. We're going to mess those things up. We're going to do justice wrong. We're going to get mercy wrong. We're going to do humility wrong. It's going to be tinged with our ego. Um, And yet at the end of the day, like, 
if our heart is bent on honoring the Lord, I have to trust that he's, he's in that. Even if, and I, Amy, that's hard for me to say because I, I like right now I'm in the middle of a situation where someone I think made a really unjust call that harmed people. And, um, it's really hard for me to say, but he is, he has planted his flag and saying like, I really sense that this is what the, the Lord was saying. And it's really hard for me to say, how is the spirit in that? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think his heart genuinely believes that it is the right thing to do. And so I have to say, okay, I, at some point I'm going to fight for justice here, but at some point I have to step back and say, I'm going to trust that I'll come to you, God. And that's so hard. So hard. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes we don't like, we don't like the answers Yeah. and the questions. Um, as I was looking through your book yesterday, one of the early chapters, I turned the page and uh, I'm seeing like Job 38 and I turned the page again. I'm like, oh, the whole chapter. <laughs> These aren't Lori's words at all. The whole thing, Job 38 and 39 was those two, two mm-hmm. chapters. And it's God finally speaking and saying, I have something to say now. I have some questions to ask you. Where were you? And and, and in the next chapter where you're like, hey, by the way, you should go back and read that if you haven't already. <laughs> go read it. I'll wait for you here. You say, and I wrote this down, underlined it. I put it in my little Notion app. I don't necessarily like this God, but I also kind of love him. Tell me about that. Yeah. I mean, that's a really hard couple chapters, right? Think about being in like the most vulnerable situation of your life and, and God sort of, I think the picture that, that we might get is God strutting in with all the things he's done that we have no control over. And I think when I made the decision to make that chapter, those two chapters of Job, it was because I was reading those chapters and I was, I felt myself and hopefully this makes sense. I felt myself getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, but not in a being wiped away kind of way, just in a like, almost like a held kind of way. Like, Mm. wow, I am so small next to this God. I am so like my suffering matters to him. He is so big and my suffering still matters to him, but I'm so small. And I think that's really important. That was really important for me to include in the book because I think oftentimes we our, our questions make us get bigger and bigger and bigger. And instead of um instead of seeing God in all of who he is. We just lob our questions at him. And I just think it was really helpful for us to remember that God, God is God. Like at the end of the day, that is the answer. Um, Yeah. It wasn't angry God that you were seeing there. It was, oh my goodness, powerful, good, all knowing, good, so much better. Yeah. More good than I am. That is the reassuring thing. That was a, that I'm going to remember this. I think I feel like I need to put it like on my wall, and, you know, where you put, I don't really love that. You know, I don't really like it. I don't really like this God, but I kind of love it. You know, we, we rail against that authority in some ways 
but it gives us a sense of peace and calm in the end that we are not in control as much as we feel like that would be helpful and give us peace because I know I can't control it. So if I am the one, if I am the ultimate one, that is the source of like chaotic stress for me. Yeah. So I needed that that reminder. I say in the book, um, it's not that we doubt God, it's that we doubt ourselves. And I think yeah. that we we get to this point where we we have made ourselves bigger in some ways, like in our mind. We've made ourselves bigger than God. And we're so like acutely aware of our failure that that's yeah. when we start to really just sort of flounder because we're like, ah, this is not a stable place to be. Like I know how messed up I am. I know where my decisions lead me. And, um, and I think coming to that place is a really beautiful place. Yeah. For us. Yeah. I know where it brings me. (laughs) If it's all me, this is not good. This is not beautiful. It's not helpful. Um, okay. I I read something and I know a little bit about your love of the West wing. Mm -hmm. I read a little something in your book that felt like a nod to it. You said, have you ever stood there in all your rightness? And I thought, is this a nod to the West Wing quote of stand there in your wrongness and be wrong? Was this purposeful? It it was a little purposeful, yes. (laughs) It's a little Easter egg in there. Well, I appreciated it. I loved it. I was like, this is her saying, hey, friends, this is for you. This is for you. Yeah, I'm glad you picked that up could have uh, a President Bartlett to sit down with. That would just be, hmm. would be lovely. Yeah. Talk this about someone who, who does like cultivate a, a presence of curiosity toward people and asking questions. Yes. Well, I am so thrilled that I asked you that because I was like, I have to ask. Yeah. I have <laughs> to ask because you didn't say like, I probably should have. I should have. I probably should have. But you didn't say stand there in your wrongness. That's true. If I had said that, I would have had to. um, You would for sure have because you're very, you have some strong opinions about giving credit. I do. To people for ideas. Let's talk about that because I think this is important. We have people, there's the, this is an ongoing conversation, especially in the Christian world of how can we be people of integrity when it comes to sharing Things that we have learned from other people. Yeah. What have you learned in this? How has it impacted you? Man, what have I learned? I, I feel like <laughs> I've learned. On both sides. Yeah. So I've learned actually most of what I've learned until I'm, I'm going to share this. This might be the, no, it's not the first time I've shared it publicly, but um, most of what I've learned about plagiarism and giving credit has been on the side of, of having my words stolen. Um, I've seen that several times throughout the I don't know, over five or more years of like interacting with you online, seeing that that's happened. Yeah, it's hap- it happened a lot. And on one hand, there's a sense of like, seriously? And then on the other hand, you're like, whatever, they're, yeah. they're words. No one can own yeah. my words. Um, uh, but interestingly, uh, I'm going to share this story. I... Um, so, so this has happened to me several times. I think probably a dozen times it's happened to me. And in almost every single one of those occasions, except one, I've just let it go. I haven't said anything. I, um, Other people have maybe confronted this person, but I, as much as possible, just stepped back and just let it go. 
one time I confronted someone because it, I mean, it was so blatant. Like my bio was ripped and, oh, man. and stolen by someone. Um, and then she went viral and I was like, that's my entire, I mean, whole words from my bio were ripped anyway. But then, uh, about a year and a half ago when I was starting to put together this book, A Curious Faith, um, I had, uh, two different titles in my mind for this book. Um, one was Disturb the Universe from a T.S. Eliot poem. And the other was A Curious Life. And those were my two titles. I'd Googled the ish out of them. I knew that there <laughs> was yep, there was no <laughs> other book titled those things, and I was good to go. Um, titles aren't aren't copyrighted anyway, and so I just you know, like yeah. but just to check. Anyway, it can be confusing if there's others out there. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, the book gets greenlit. They come back and say, hey, we'd rather it be a curious faith. And I'm like, fine, whatever. That's great. Don't Google it. Announce the book title several months later after it's already in the catalogs. It's already everything. And I get a message from someone whose book is very similarly titled. And I was faced with this decision in that moment. I can either get defensive or I can draw near to this person and apologize. Uh, again, titles aren't, aren't copyrighted, so it's not plagiarism, but still it feels like plagiarism for her. Yeah. And so yeah. I'm able to come to draw near to her and we've built a friendship over the past year yeah. that wouldn't have existed otherwise. And so I think there are a lot of ills around plagiarism. It's really, it's so prevalent in Christian publishing right now. And I think partially it's prevalent because we are content machines. We are having to churn out material to get eyes um, so that we can grow our platform, so we can write our books. Like, it's just, it's a bunch of garbage, I think. Sorry, you got me on my um, <laughs> my soapbox. Yeah. Uh, but I, so I think the problem is really, it's, I say it's a problem with editors, it's a problem with writers, problem with readers, problem pu with publishers. Um, if we can slow our roll and not have to create as much content as we're creating, I hate talking about content creators, but yeah, yeah. Um, then I think we'll just be more thoughtful around what we're doing. But it's, it's so easy to do right now, even unintentionally. We're going to do that at some point. Because we're going to think we're smarter than we came up with this idea ourselves. But if somebody says, hey, that sounds like so-and-so, it doesn't really cost a whole lot to say, "Not at all." yes, I did read that. And you should follow that person. You should go find their book. Yeah. Um, and to say, like, how can I make it right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really important to say that. Um, I think I did see you give a shout out to a person who shared the the title of your book as you were um, uh, getting ready to launch as you're getting closer to launch day. And I thought, Oh, now I do remember that person had a book with that title. And that made me feel even, it made me feel good about you acknowledging, acknowledging that without even knowing the story of like how, how that would have felt like, Oh man, you wouldn't have from what I've seen, like intentionally, taking up taking up a space no make it more difficult for somebody to make oh my goodness sell their books because, i was devastated no. i was devastated. Like your worst nightmare your it was worst my worst nightmare it still is honestly it still is my worst nightmare and i've i've just had to be like i didn't know didn't know about the book didn't 
assumed to have been, you know, researched. And um, we share a lot of the same spaces. And I just, I didn't know. I was unaware. That's not an excuse, though. And so I really just, just to, to say, like, I did go. I did advocate for the the, the uh, title to be changed. It was too late at that point. But um, I think we have to do everything we can to to draw near to people when that when that happens, um, especially when we're the, the guilty party. We have to draw near. Again, I don't know what to do when when we get plagiarized. It's it's it feels rotten, and yeah. there's there's it's really it's it's kind of an impossible situation to be in because if you are someone with less power, you just you sound like you're you sound whiny and yeah. um and jealous. And if you're someone with more power who's been plagiarized, then you sound like a bully. So there's no winning. This is not like there's not a winning situation. There's not a winning side. Yeah. I don't like that. I was talking to Caitlin Beatty about the plagiarism issue too. And she says one of the really ugly things in the industry is that it's hard to hold that accountable. If, if this is happening with people that are the, are the books that pay the bills because not all of them earn back their advances. And there's just a small percentage of, of names associated with certain publishing houses that are paying the bills. And that's such a, it's such a disappointing thing to think that it feels like an ends justify the means like, well, you know, we could do something, but it would cost all this other stuff. And I just, I hate, I hate the message that it sends so that we need to sacrifice somebody small for God's goodness. I just don't feel like that's the way the kingdom works. Like Jesus isn't like, oh, well, what am I going to do now? I can't use Lori's book. <laughs> Lori's yeah. book can't come out. What? How am I going to help people? And this is what I think going back to what we talked about in the very, very beginning, like there are there are bad things in the world that are under yeah. the underneath them. There's something good. And there are beautiful things in the world that underneath them, there's something gross and learning to live with that tension, which is really hard. And I will never tell anyone that it is easy yeah. to live with that tension, but I think it's so important as a Christian, we are not in eternity. We do not see face to face. We do not see, we see through a glimmer a glass dimly and and so there's going to be a little bit of a little bit of dirt everywhere right yes yeah and I mean you said that about social media this is what Mm -hmm. I this is something that I think is interesting call is that you have decided to not as much as you want to like retreat because of the way things are changing like on Instagram and different places is that you instead have decided to engage in a very intentional specific way and how you bring content and beauty into the world. Thank you for saying, and I for saying that. I, I sometimes, <laughs> literally, I, I feel like it's every week. I'm like, I, I got to be done with this space. It just feels. I, I told a friend recently. It feels like I have a different manager every single week who's telling me to do something different. And I just, I don't work that way. I'm a. You don't want to feed yeah. the beast of the algorithm. What what makes it worth it for you? Worth what it. when you like put something, a picture you love, things you have like collected, like for the weekend. This is you 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 collect things throughout the week, and you yeah. share over the weekend. Here are some things I've seen that are beautiful. 
who is this for? Who like what makes this worth it's it? It's just for you? gonna sound really selfish, but it makes it worth it for me, I think. <laughs> like if I can if I can gather, curate this little group of beauty, this little, you know, um 30, 40 pieces of beauty that I saw throughout the week and share them with other people. Um, that makes it worth it for me. Um, the marketing side of Instagram, I, I just, I really feel, I feel over that. I feel really, uh, I'm going to have your husband, I'm going to like find someone to check in on you. If I see you do a reel of you grocery shopping or something like that, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to send in the calorie. I've been trying to do a couple of reels and I, I really find I don't enjoy making them. They're hard for me to make. Yeah. They're, they take a lot more time and I just, I don't enjoy them. And so I'm just trying to figure out what's, but yeah, I am, I am trying to push people more toward Substack and stable because I just, I yeah. like trying to keep up with the algorithms across the board. It's just, it feels yeah, one of your endorsers, I'm looking at your book, Karen's Follow Prior. She was just talking with David French and Curtis Chang about how social media has formed us and the importance of like really engaging with literature. And um, so what is a what is a piece of literature that has formed you that you love? I'll, I want to ask this of people. This is going to go on my list of things to ask because I love do you mean fiction or I want to hear fiction because I, fiction. I read too much nonfiction. I need, mm-hmm. I need formative, fiction. formative fiction. Well, I just mentioned glittering images and okay. it really is uh, just beautifully done. Um, th- just a, a warning that there is some, there's some material in there that is um, PG 13 probably. I don't know. Or I don't know what's, <laughs> what the ratings are these days. Um, another novel that has really formed me that I really love. I really love the brothers. I love so many novels. I love the brothers K. Um, I love, uh, the Gilead story. I love, um, the port, uh, the port Henry stories from Wendell Berry, uh, Jaber Crow, Hannah Coulter, memory of old Jack. I love those stories. I would say the most formative, I'll say this, the most, probably the most formative hard question. Yeah. novel. Yeah. I read a lot of literature. The most formative novel of my life was actually probably Troubling a Star by Madeline LaEngle back in when I was 13. I read that and I read that book and I said to myself, I'm going to be a writer someday. I want to write like she's writing. I want to be able to communicate to people. Because she had this, I don't know if you're familiar with the book, but it's it's a young adult novel from her her series, Meet the, the Austin Family. And um, she has this way of writing a narrative that's that's fun, you know, like it's a fun story. But bringing these sort of existential questions into these these stories for children, essentially. And it was the first time in my life where I was like, oh, I can ask about these big questions. And um, so I really have Madeline to thank for uh, disturbing my universe, which is what she she says. Asking questions is important, especially in children's literature. Asking questions is important because it can disturb their universe. Um, And so she disturbed mine when I was 13. And I've never been the same since. 
I love that. I love that. Okay, before we go, I want to ask you, give me what is one of your go-to questions hmm. to ask somebody when you are getting to know someone? Hmm. I like to ask what's your story because I think it's a really kind of open-ended question in a way someone can choose to tell me their you know biography their autobiography or they can think about a story that's really forming them right then or they can give me bullet points and I can kind of dial in on one of them Um, or what most often happens when I say what's your story is this sort of surprise like (laughs) deer caught in the headlights like why why would you ask me that question that feels like a very deep and personal question Um, but it really matters to me. Everyone has a story and, um, I like, we should care about those stories. Well, thank you. I so appreciate your time. I am very excited. Thank you about, thank you for writing your book. I know Mm -hmm. it was an unconventional way of getting it into the world. There must be a reason it's out there. As far as I can tell, we haven't had like a pandemic attached or some like, (laughs) like, Catastrophic or something that has said it is wrong to be curious, and we don't ever want to be curious, like what happened with your yeah, my um, first book, your other book. But I, I thank you, thank you for your time, thank you for your curiosity, and thank you for letting us see the middle of this the process. Um, mm. it's really easy to talk about how things were hard in the past and how we used to have questions and now we have it figured out. And so thank you for just letting us be in this middle with the questions still. I really greatly appreciate it. Thanks, Amy. I really appreciate you having me. I want to read a section from Lori's book, A Curious Faith, as I wrap up this episode. One of the chapters in this book is titled, What's in Your Hand? It's the question God asks Moses while Moses is standing in front of the burning bush. Here's a paragraph from that chapter. The thing about Moses, though, the baby spared from Pharaoh's massacre, gathered from the rushes and reeds, raised among kings, is that he was given every opportunity to be anything he could want to be, except the thing he actually was. And when the opportunity came for him to be the Hebrew he was, it went sideways. It ended in murder. He had to flee to the wilderness, wear rough linens, serve someone else's land and goals, and care for livestock. When God asks what is in Moses' hand, the staff in his hand is there because so many things have gone wrong in Moses' life. At the end of the next paragraph, Lori writes this, When God asks you what's in your hand, he's asking, What did you not expect to carry into this wild and precious life? What heartbreaking proof do you hold that your life did not go as you planned? Lori points out that in the middle of the grief, God still manages to use what's in our hands. That's the question I'll leave you with today. What's in your hand? Thanks so much for listening to the Untangled Faith Podcast. Don't forget to check out the rest of my conversation with Lori at patreon.com slash untangledfaith. I'd love to keep the conversation going over on Twitter or Instagram or through the Facebook page. I'm Untangled Faith on Instagram and Facebook and Faith Untangled on Twitter. For more information about supporting the show, check out patreon.com slash untangledfaith. You can find the show notes at untangledfaithpodcast.com. The Untangled Faith Podcast is hosted and edited by me, Amy Fritz. 
A special thanks to my Patreon supporters. This podcast is made possible by support from patrons. Special thanks to producers Michelle Pionic and Phil and Susan Purdue. I'll meet you back here next week.